remain standing. Let's read our passage for this morning. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of the consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep gone astray, but now you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you that you are our great shepherd, and you are the overseer of our soul. Lord, although you didn't know sin, you became sin for me and for everyone listening. You became sin, Lord, so that we can have eternity with you if we surrender our lives to your lordship. Lord, we've worshipped you through song. We want to continue that through your word. Lord, we just want to be in awe of who you are. Lord, thank you one day we can lay a crown at your feet because you deserve it. Not because we earned it, Lord, because you deserve it. We praise you this morning for who you are, all that you've done, and all that you're going to do. And Jesus, we just want to say that we love you. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. I would like for somebody to do a little project this week. Print out the words to all the songs we sang. And then highlight, circle, underline the words, the passages, the concepts in those songs that are going to be in this message. It really is phenomenal how God does this. Grayson and I don't meet. Usually he has the music ready before I have the sermon ready. So think about the act of the Holy Spirit working in two different men, in two different positions, in two different responsibilities, aligning everything that we're doing here today to focus our attention on Jesus. So again, as Grayson read, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 is a, an awkward passage, if I'm being honest, especially in the day of the culture in which we live. So before we dive into the passage, I think it's critical that we understand the context from which this letter is written. Peter, remember, is writing to Jewish believers in the mid to late first century, and he's writing to those who are in the middle of Roman oppression as well as in the middle of the Roman civil system. Now, I want to be clear, Peter is, and the Bible is, in no way condoning or even affirming slavery. I'm going to get into that a little bit more deeply in just a minute, but he's rather trying to speak to Christians in all walks of life and give them proper instruction. Imagine, if you will, that the Bible was written to only tall people. Some of y'all would be left out. Or if it was written to only short people, some of y'all would be left out. If it was only written to skinny people, I would not be preaching. But to be fair, there wouldn't be many preaching. Amen? Let's just be honest. 
So here's my point. The, the Bible is not written to the poor. It's not written to the rich, rich. It's not written to the left, to the right. It's written to all. Why? Because the gospel is for all. And so the scriptures are for all. The instruction is for every one of us to find God's purpose for our life in his written, holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And so when Peter wrote this letter, he's writing it to a, a different set, set of people, a different culture of people, but they're the same people. Does that make sense? Our cultures change, our times change, our context may change, but we're all, at the end of it all, just people. We're the same fleshly beings as he was writing to here. So I don't want the message of this text to get lost in the weeds of the subject of slavery because we might miss the context of this specific community to which this letter was written. Verses like this have actually been used in the past to defend slavery, which is an abomination, by the way, and it's a, it's a corruption of God's Word. It's, it's what happens anytime we take the Bible out of context. One of my favorites is the story, and I don't know if it's true or not, and by the way, I don't know who said it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow it. But they, the story goes that this church built this big fellowship hall, this big elaborate fellowship hall. They're so excited about it. And they wanted to come up with a verse to plaster over the doors of the fellowship hall. And they were so excited. And they took a lot of recommendations. And finally they settled on one and they wrote it up there. And it said, all this I will give to you if you will but bow to me. Which very inspiring sounding, right? To you consider who said it. If you read scripture and you look for that verse, that's Satan speaking to Jesus as he tempted him in the wilderness. So context is important. That's why I say all the time to our college group back in those days, and I'll say it all the time to you, context is king. Without understanding context, you cannot understand fully the Word of God. Now let me give you a, a statement from a guy much smarter than me so you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. This is from Dr. Bob Utley. He's a noted hermeneutics professor, pastor, preacher, teacher. Here's what he said. The Bible must always be interpreted in its historical setting and then the inspired truths applied to our day and culture with the same power and impact. In other words, the Bible never says what it didn't say to the original audience. It never says to you something it didn't say to them. It may say it to you in a different manner. Your application may be different. But the Bible says what the Bible says, and it said it to the same people that the original letter was read to before it was even canonized into what we call these 66 books of the Bible. The Bible never says to you what it didn't say to them, so we need to always understand the original audience, okay? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the slavery part of it, but I want you to promise me we're not going to get lost in the bushes running around worried about the fact that it says household slaves and it gives them instructions rather than trying to tell them you shouldn't be household slaves. And, and by the way, in our first point, the explanation, verses 18 through 20, the explanation will help us understand that. He uses the term household slaves, which is oiketes in the Greek, oiketes. And this is a specific word. Remember, oiketes is not doulos. Paul would use doulos in Ephesians 6, where he's talking about slaves obeying your masters. But here he's talking about this specific type of slave, and he's talking about domestic servants. So he's not talking about the, the slave in the field, the slave in the factory, the slave in the, the foundry, the, the gin, whatever it is. He's talking about the maids, the butlers. He's talking about the household slaves. By the way, this would also include uh, physicians. Uh, if you had a wealthy person, they would have physicians as indentured servants or slaves. So it's, 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 a, different, it's a different kettle of fish for us to understand. So the household slaves, why is he writing to them particularly? Because they were around the master a lot more. They experienced the results of their master's personality more often. 
and more personally than their counterparts out in the fields. So remember, we talked about at the outset of the message, keeping this discussion in the proper context. Now, I'm going to give you a few statements that I wrote down. I'm hoping these will help us to really hold on to what we need to take away from this scripture, okay? Here's the first one. The purpose of the Bible is to point people to heaven, not correct every social ill on earth. The purpose of the Bible is to point people to heaven, not correct every social ill on earth. Slavery at the time of Peter was almost always due to indentured servitude or prisoners of war, all right? This is not chattel slavery, which we'll get into later, which is a blight on the history of our country where we actually went over, stole people, robbed them from their homes, drugged them across against their will, and forced them into slavery. This is apples and oranges as to what we're talking about when he's talking to the household slaves or the indentured servants. So for us to understand what I just said, that the Bible's purpose is to point people to heaven, we are not trying to make heaven on earth. That's not our mission. Listen to me, church. America is not heaven. Israel is not heaven. Nothing down here is heaven. I I think we have glimpses of heaven. I think that the first time I held my kids, I think that was a glimpse of heaven. There's, There's just something special that happens in that moment. When I was standing at the front of the little church at Westside Baptist in Florella, when the back doors opened and I saw my wife, uh, my soon-to-be wife at that time, coming out in that white dress, that was a moment of, of experiencing some kind of a, just a, and to be honest, no offense to my beautiful wife or my beautiful kids, but it's a cheap copy of what heaven's really going to be like. But we experience that joy in the moment sometimes. But listen, listen, <laughs> if you're not sure whether or not this is heaven or earth, go talk to some people that have been suffering. Go talk to some people who have lost loved ones. Go talk to some people who are dealing with cancer. Go talk to some people who have long-term issues in their body where they they can't get their full health back. It's easy sometimes to miss it, but we are not living in heaven, and we're not meant to be. You've heard me say this before. A little suffering is good for the soul because it helps us remember this is not our home. Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of here. We, We don't need to get comfortable down here. We don't need to put down roots. We don't need to plan on staying here for eternity because this is not where we're supposed to be. Now, the New Testament writers, if they had set out to cure all the social ills, they would have had to done a lot more writing and they would have garnered a lot more negative attention and the true message that they were trying to communicate would have been lost. So their their job was not to try to reestablish God's will for everybody to live without slavery, without sex outside of marriage, without uh, homosexuality, without all this other stuff, these terrible things that we have in our society like drug abuse and and murder and and child endangerment and, and all this stuff. They could not come down here and fix all that if they tried. And that was not their mission. Remember what the mission of Jesus was. What's the most simplistic way to understand the mission of Christ? Look in what he said. He said in Luke, I think it's Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not to correct all the ills of society, not to make everybody live like they're supposed to live or, or treat people like they're supposed to treat them. See, I firmly believe that if we get people the gospel that the Holy Spirit will cure their social ills as a side effect to their conversion. If you'll just get them saved, God will clean them up. You catch them, he'll clean them. That's why we're fishers of men. Emily liked that. 
We're fishers of men because we're to go catch them and then give them to him and he's going to clean them. Your job's not to clean them. I've said this before. Austin, listen to me. Austin's job is not to moralize your children. And I'm going to challenge you to something, parents. Your job is not to moralize your children. Your job is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ into them. To live out the gospel of Jesus Christ so dramatically and so clearly, so authentically that they follow the pattern that you set and they become a follower of Jesus Christ. You know what will happen if they do that? All that moral stuff, take it care of. You don't have to worry about it. We've spent years in the church screaming at kids, don't drink, don't cuss, don't have sex outside of marriage. And we forgot to tell them about Jesus. No wonder 70% are walking away. I want to be clear, the Bible never promotes or condones chattel slavery. And, and just to give you some clarification, I'm going to give you the definition. Actually, chattel slavery would be what we would consider now human trafficking. They're very similar concepts. They're very similar uh, egregious acts upon men and women. Uh, there's an organization called the End It Movement, and part of what they're trying to do is to get attention to the fact that there are more slaves on this planet today than at any time in our history. Think about that for a minute. Here, here's the definition. The enslaving and owning of human beings and their offspring as property, able to be bought, sold, and forced to work without wages, as distinguished from other systems of forced, unpaid, or low-wage labor that are also considered to be slavery. So in our, in our passage here, in this time, this was indentured servitude-type slavery. So you would have somebody who... Uh, lost everything. Maybe they're a gambler. Maybe they're uh, a drunk. Maybe they're involved in other stuff for whatever reason. They lose everything and they're destitute. They have no way to, to take care of themselves or possibly even themselves and their family. And so they would come to somebody who was a landowner, who was a farmer, who had some kind of uh, you know, clout and, and money, and they would come to them and say, hey, I want to I be your slave. I want to come and be your slave so, so you can help me not die. And, and I want to be clear about this. Y'all listening at home, don't click this out on the interwebs, on Facebook. Don't clip this out and say, Kevin said he likes slavery. That's not what I'm saying. What I want you to hear me say, though, is in this context, this was a life-saving mechanism for some people because they couldn't get their ducks in a row. Matter of fact, they couldn't find all their ducks. They just they couldn't take care of themselves, and they found themselves completely without, destitute, and these people would come and say, hey, take me in. And in the Jewish system, every seven years, you had to release them. And there's actually, think about this, there's actually... Uh, in the scriptures, it tells you if the person doesn't want to be released, they can take an awl and drive a hole in their earlobe showing that they are uh, uh, submitting willingly to staying in their slavery position. Think about that for drug addicts and people like that in our day. We could, if, if there was this still system, they could come in and, and work for somebody and, and be uh, cared for and watched after. Now, here's the problem. People. <laughs> when I say here's the problem, guess what I'm almost always going to do? Who's got two thumbs and is the problem? This guy. What's going to happen is when you give somebody that authority, they're going to abuse it. Just like men abuse women because they have authority over women because that's biblical, men abuse that because we're fleshly. If you'll allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, husband, lead you, man, you won't abuse that authority, but we will. And so this is why the Bible stands against chattel slavery. Let me give you an example. Now, we could go back to Genesis 1, and we understand that slavery is wrong from Genesis 1 because we know that every man and woman was made in the image of God. Imago Dei. 
We are made in the image of our Creator, and therefore we should be honored as image bearers of Almighty God. So I can, I can take you to Genesis 1 and tell you the Bible was against slavery. But let me give you another two examples, an Old Testament example and a New Testament example for the, for the sake of time. And parenthetically, I understand that last Sunday's sermon was almost bordering on a hostage situation. I want to give you my word. That was not my intention, and it is not my intention today. I'm going to try to keep moving expeditiously. So here we go. From the Old Testament, look in the Mosaic Law, okay? Uh, Exodus 21.16 tells us that the penalty for capturing and selling people as property was death. Was the God of the Old Testament against slavery? If you did it, he'd kill you. I think that's pretty much against it. Well, what about the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10, give us a list of things that only the unrighteous, evil people do. Guess what's on that list? Slave trading. In our common vernacular, we would say human traffickers are not going to get into heaven. They're evil. They're unrighteous. So the Bible is against slavery. Just because some boneheaded people back in the early times of our country used Scripture poorly out of context to try to condone the evil that was chattel slavery, they were out of the will of God. They were out of the understanding of Scripture. The Bible is clear that God is against mistreating human beings because we are in the image of God. So Peter's not supporting the practice of slavery, rather doing what the whole Bible does, which is focusing our attention on how we can best glorify Jesus in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And he says, even if the person over you is cruel, you should endure whatever you got to endure for the glory of Christ. Now, uh, the word cruel I thought was very interesting. It's scolios. Scolios in the Greek. Does that sound like a word you're familiar with? Scoliosis. That's where we get that word. So we're talking about the unjust bent or curved crooked people that's the people that he's talking about if you're if your boss is crooked if he's scolios not if he has scoliosis that's a different thing Terry got confused if he's if, if he's bent or crooked in the way that he conducts himself that doesn't mean that you can just revolt against that that means that you need to figure out how best to honor Christ in that situation number one and then number two look for another job check the one ads get your resume ready but by the same token, these people, if their slave master was cruel to them, they shouldn't flee. They shouldn't run. Matter of fact, if you'll go and study the, the story in Philemon, or Philemon, or whatever you want to call him, that, that's the story of a slave that had run away. And Paul says, hey, you're a follower of Christ. You've run away. You need to go back. And we would look at that and go, what are you talking about, Paul? He's gotten free. And he's going to need to go back. No, no. He does. Why? Because his first mission has got to be how to honor Christ. Not how to escape slavery, not how to escape the situation you're in at work. Listen, not how to escape the relationship, not how to escape the illness. Every situation you find yourself in, you as a follower of Jesus Christ should first and foremost think to yourself, how can I glorify Christ in this? And then you try to figure out how you can get out of it by any legal means necessary. Now, I'm going to give a caveat here. If you're in a in, a, in an abusive relationship, if you're, if you're in a situation where you are being assaulted, physically abused, your life is in danger, flee. Run to somebody. In church, we need to wrap our arms around those folks. We need to help those folks. Men or women, whatever the situation, we need to help them. Why? Because that is a life-threatening situation. It can cause the death of the woman, the death of the children. Those situations almost never end any, in anything other than tragedy. So we run from that, from that physical abuse, 
And then we try to honor Christ in the way we conduct ourselves going forward. So that's the explanation. And I hope that makes it clearer for you what we're talking about when he's talking to the household slaves, telling them to submit. And now let's talk about our expectation. I think this is a beautiful part of what he is talking to us about here. Again, we can get lost in the weeds of slavery, but I want us to pull out of that a little bit. And I want you to look at verse 21, the first part. He says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. That word called was in one of our songs. I'm giving you a little bit of a head start on the little project I threw out. That word is kaleo. I love that word in the Greek, kaleo. And it means to call to a task or to invite. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And then in verse 24, it says, He who calls you, he who kaleos you, that's not proper use of the Greek, but y'all get the, the point. He who calls you, invites you, is faithful, he will do it. So we see this call that, that God is, is using on our lives. Peter uses this word four times in this one short letter. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 12. So four times in this one short letter, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus has called us into ministry with him. Now, what does that mean? If you're called into ministry with Christ, guess what you're called into? Suffering with Christ. It always amazes me when people say, man, I just can't believe I gave my life to Jesus and everything didn't get perfect. I gave my life to Jesus and went back to work Monday. My boss still stinks and my job still stinks and my leg still hurts and I, I still got these bills. and Yeah, yeah. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Let me ask you something. Why would Paul tell the church at Rome to be patient in affliction if coming to Jesus meant all your problems went away? That makes sense, does it? Well, all right, well, let's, let's, maybe that's different. Let's, let's look at what Jesus said about it. What did Jesus say about following him? Here's what he said. You will have suffering in this world, John 16, 33. You talking about followers of Christ, those who have committed their lives to Jesus, will, which is an affirmative, have suffering in this life. But then he says, be courageous. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. Here's the problem. The problem is not the suffering. The problem is our inability to be courageous within the suffering. That's our problem. Why? Because we forget that we're supposed to imitate Christ. We're supposed to be looking like Jesus. Jesus calls us, he invites us to join him in this task that he has set out for us, which is what? To make disciples and to bring God the glory that he so richly deserves. That's our purpose. That's our task. Be a good parent. Why? Because you're going to bring God the glory he deserves, and you're going to make disciples through doing that. Be a good employee. Be a good employer. Be a good boss. Be a good worker. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Be a good pastor. Be a good staff member. Be a good deacon, a good elder, a good Sunday school teacher, a good church member. Just be a good person. Why? Because God deserves glory, and we glorify him when we live like Jesus. I'm jumping ahead to my third point. Let me hold up. So the expectation for what it looks like to follow Jesus is not hard to find either. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When he says take up his cross, the, the context is clear. He meant pick up your article of destruction. Pick up the thing that's going to lead to your end. In other words, embrace the suffering, embrace death, embrace whatever this world has for you because that's what mission you're on to exalt Jesus from here until you die. 
And by the way, exalting Jesus first shouldn't even be a close race. You, exalting Jesus first should be way out ahead of the pack when it comes to the other stuff that you think about doing. Our problem is sometimes we shift that and we think, how can I make more money? How can I be more successful? How can I find more contentment and peace and happiness and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, and, and I need to exalt Jesus. That's not your mission, church. It's not what he put you here to do. He didn't put you here to be happy. He put you here to be holy. He didn't put his Holy Spirit in you to make you happy. He put his Holy Spirit in you to make you holy, to make you sanctified, to make you set apart. Stop living like anything less than what God has committed you to be and empowered you to be through his Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it perfectly, I think, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to read a whole little paragraph here, so stay with me. I know sometimes we drift when you start to get read to. You're going to hear the quote that we typically hear, but I want to read some of the stuff around it because I think it's really enriching to hear this. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. And remember, he, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian in, uh, in uh, Nazi Germany, okay? He says, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. That's what we talked about in baptism last week. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 6, buried with him in baptism unto death, raised to walk in the newness of life. Bonhoeffer goes on and says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like one of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be the death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ. Listen, the death of the old man at his call. He is calling. We were called to this. What? We were called to come and die. The expectation for what it would look like for Peter to follow Christ was spelled out clearly long before he preached his first sermon, long before he became a conduit for the Holy Spirit, long before he uh, denied Christ, long before. It's just all of these things have happened. Long before Peter was Peter in our minds. Long before he wrote this letter. Listen to what John records. In John 21, 18 and 19, this is Jesus speaking first. He's talking to Peter. He says, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. John, by the way, there's a very interesting relationship between John and Peter. If you get a chance, just kind of look at that. It's really funny. Verse 19, John kind of extrapolates here. He says, he said this to indicate by, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, talking about Jesus told him, follow me. Now, church tradition tells us that Peter was uh, crucified upside down. He was uh, executed during the time of Nero, shortly after writing his second letter. And here, here's what a church historian Origen wrote. He said that Peter, quote, felt himself to be unworthy to be put to death in the same manner as his master. And you may be sitting there, you're going to say, okay, Kevin, I, I know John recorded that, but John and Peter had kind of this little adversarial kind of, they were buddies, they were good friends, but they were picking on each other a little bit. Maybe, maybe Peter didn't fully understand what Jesus told him that day. Maybe Peter didn't fully understand it. Maybe he didn't process it all. Listen to what Peter said in the beginning of his second letter, 2 Peter 1, 14. He says, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, which is uh, symbolically talking about death, I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. He knew, didn't he, Neil? 
You can't read that second letter and say, ah, maybe he was, maybe he was confused. Maybe he was still puzzled. Maybe he thought he was going to have a better end. No, no, no. Peter fully understand what was going to happen to him, and he sold out and followed Christ anyway. Let me ask you, what's your excuse? I think there's a big misconception with people in the church. I think that's a big reason many people abandon their profession of faith when times get hard. They either have a misconception, they don't understand what it really meant to follow Christ, or they've been misled to thinking that following Jesus would solve all their problems. Listen to what James said. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I want you to hear me. If you just study your Bible a little bit, it's easy to see that suffering is part of the mix. So we see the explanation, we see our expectation, but also our example. Our example. Now, I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Hey, spoiler alert, it's Jesus, okay? But before we really get into that concept, let's talk about two words that I just, I don't, I, I don't want to leave this passage without getting these two words. The first one is the word healed. Verse 24 uh, says, by his wounds you have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 5. In the Greek, it's Iahomahi, and in the Hebrew, it's Rapha, okay? So you have the Hebrew word in Isaiah, and you have the Greek word in the New Testament where Peter is quoting Isaiah. Here's the cool thing. Both words mean the same thing. They mean cure, heal, make whole. This speaks to a spiritual healing. Listen, you can be cancer-free and not be whole. Okay, You can be healed of, of COVID, you can be healed of the flu, you can be healed of, of any other disease and still not be whole because your heart is not converted. Your life is not surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You, therefore, are going to be a healthy person until you die and go to hell. So the concept here is being made whole. It's a spiritual healing. Now, I'm not trying to throw stones at when people pray and say, Lord, by you, the Word says that by your stripes we're healed. I believe that we are healed physically. There is physical healing that can come. But the totality of what happened when he was beaten was that we could be made whole as in sinless, as in redeemed, justified. Now verse 25 has the other word. He says, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned, and that's the word we're going to look at, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Can you just... Does anybody else just really kind of get kind of giddy when you hear that? He's the shepherd and overseer of my soul. That encourages me when I know I'm, I'm heading for something hard, when I'm going into difficulties, when I've got challenging relationships or physical issues, whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm preparing for, I know that my God is the shepherd and overseer of my life. In other words, he's watching. Hey, church, you suffering this morning? Jesus is watching. You got problems coming up tomorrow? You got something you're looking for? You got surgery scheduled? He's watching. He is the shepherd and overseer. This word returned is epistrepho, and it means to change one's ways, to turn around. And that's what coming to Jesus means, is to turn around. Uh, to repent is a 180-degree turn 
from where we were going. We were going towards hell, and we turned to heaven. We were going towards flesh, we turned to the spirit. We were going towards self, and we turned to Christ. It's a turn. It's a 180 degree. Not a veer off, not just a casual like a little Texas two-step, and then go back to what we were doing. It's a complete life change. And that's the same concept here. Returned, turned around, changed one's ways. And if we're going to change our ways, what do we got to have? We, got, we can't live by our old example. We got to have a new example. So now let's talk about our example. The second part of verse 21 says, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That word example is a Greek word that means an underwriting. Literally, that, verse, that word translated from the Greek literally is writing under. So here's, here's the analogy I want to use. And I had to ask Lindsay. I was trying to make sure I had the words right. There are many examples in Scripture of good, godly people we could follow. We could look at Moses. We could look at Joshua. We could look at Joseph. Uh, there's a ton of people we could look at. But we're, about, we're supposed to look at Jesus. And so this example, this underwriting, here, here's what it looks like. So let's, let's use some of our awesome VBS decorations. You see this? It's kind of textured. You see there's raised. So, so he, when we come to Christ, we become a clear sheet of paper. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, is if, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. New. The old has passed away. All things become new. We're a sheet, clean sheet of paper. And what, what this example word means in the Greek is we put that up against Jesus. This is Jesus. This is our clean sheet of paper. We put it up against him and we rub it. And I think that's what that's called, is rubbing, where you have a textured thing, you put a paper up above it, and you take uh, charcoal, wax, crayon, something like that, and you, you rub across it. What happens when we do that? It becomes imprinted. So, so what we see there, all of a sudden it shows up here. Let me ask you something this morning, church. Would you prefer a little extra rubbing if it would make Jesus become more clear in your life? It would help that lost neighbor, that lost coworker, that lost family member come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you let God rub you a little harder? Would you let him be a little more abrasive in your life to make sure that that image pops out of you, that you are an example, that you look like Jesus and you can tell other people what Paul said. Imitate me as I'm imitating him. In other words, I'm going to take my life, I'm going to put it up against Jesus, and I'm going to rub it until it looks like Jesus, and I'm going to tell you you can do your life to me that way. I'm going to walk so closely to Jesus that I'm going to be an example like he's an example. Do you remember the WWJD? Come on, old people. I know, I know we're out here. Remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? Anybody, want, anybody know when that started? This is not a rhetorical question. The 90s? The 60s? Clarify on the 90s. Which 90s? 1990s. You were close. You're only off by 100 years. <laughs> Listen, I, I didn't know that either. In the late 1800s, there was a book by a man called Charles Sheldon, and here's the name of the book, In His Steps, colon, What Would Jesus Do? And it started a craze. People, there's like 30 million copies of this book have been sold. People read it, and they patterned their life 
looking at what would Jesus do. And then in the 90s, there was a youth pastor, a student pastor that saw this, read this book, and introduced that, and then it took off again. So it did, you had all the WWJD bracelets. I remember watching an NBA game, and an NBA player had a WWJD bracelet on, and he was standing at the free throw line, and some guy was trash-talking him, and he cussed that dude in the stands. Now, this is a, he cussed that dude for all he was worth. And I'm looking at that bracelet going, yeah, not that. <laughs> I can't answer all that question, but I know he wouldn't do that. Here's the thing. This should be the mantra of every Christian. Every one of, look at me. Every one of us, look at me. Young, young men, young women, before you get in a relationship, you should, you should talk to yourself and you should like get in your head and say, okay, what would Jesus do? Is this something Jesus would pursue? College students, young adults, as you're entering the workforce, before you accept that job offer, you need to look at it and say, what would Jesus do? Some of you have been greatly gifted with different artistic abilities or, or even vocational abilities or craftsmen and artists. Man, I, I, I envy you. Me and Dion, Dion liked to kill me yesterday trying to get two new headlights put in my daughter's car. I'm not a craftsman, okay? I, y'all t- I told y'all before, I love a carpenter. I'm not a carpenter. I built a doghouse, a dog wouldn't sleep in it. But before you start using those artistic abilities or those skills that God has put inside of you, you need to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do with this ability? What would Jesus do with this blessing? What would Jesus do with this job, with this calling? You see, here's the thing. Our example, we take that blank sheet and we put it up to our example. We can put that, exam- we can put that sheet of paper up against the Lamb of God. John said in John 1, 29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And maybe look like this. Maybe it just makes my mind think about this little spotless, innocent lamb. And that's him. That's our example. This beautiful, spotless lamb. So we need to put our paper up against that and rub it. But here's the problem. This is how we turn out. Some raggedy old dirty sheep or some useless, weak muppet. By the way, a dirty sheep sometimes is a lost goat, and we just don't recognize it. But I'm going to tell you this, God knows the difference between a goat and a sheep. You better make sure you know the difference in your life. You better make sure that you're not counting on some baptism 100 years ago or some church membership somewhere or some, I walked the aisle, shook the preacher's hand. You better make sure that you look more like the first lamb and not that dirty old lamb right there. See, we have the line of the tribe of Judah. That's what Jesus was referred to. Think about the line of the tribe of Judah. And that's our pattern. That's our example. That's our underwriting. We put our lives, our blank piece of paper over that, and we rub it. And we're supposed to come out in his image. But here's the problem. Sometimes we can't turn out like this guy. You ever feel like that? John 13, 15, Jesus said, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And that's a great statement. That's a great, man, he's the the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? What can we do? You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're the, the sinless, spotless lamb of Almighty God. What do we do? Here's the context. Back to context again. I think God's trying to make a point with context today. Here's the problem with us thinking that Jesus is using that verse to call us to some great, big, huge activity. You know the context around which Jesus made this statement in John 13? What was he doing? The Son of God, the Son of Man, 
author and perfecter of our faith. The initiator and instigator and authority of all of creation had knelt down. And he tied his robe around and he took a, a cloth. And he washed the dirt he had made off the feet he had made of his disciples. And he said, I'm giving you an example. You know what that example was? You ain't that hot, chief. <laughs> that example was humility and servitude. The Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what are we doing? What are we doing if we're trying to call attention to ourselves and glorify ourselves and get more likes and followers and clicks? What are we doing? We are not living our example. We are not showing our underwriting. We show our underwriting when we're humble and submissive. Tony Evans said, Jesus is the perfect example of someone enduring unjust suffering since he alone is sinless. See, Peter is helping us understand our calling, that kaleo, as it relates to answering adversity. He points out the explanation, he gives us our expectation, and then he shows us our example. Adrian Rogers said this. I want you to get this. This is a great quote. It took me a while to, to really process it. Adrian Rogers said, You cannot be over the things God wants you to be over until you learn to be under those things that God has set over you. Sometimes you've got a problem at your work because you're not trying to stay in your lane. Sometimes there's a problem in your home because you're not trying to stay in your lane. Sometimes there's a problem in your church because you're not trying to stay in your lane. We need pastors to pastor. We need staff to staff. We need elders to eld. We need deacons to deke. We need teachers to teach. And we need members to show up. We need to stay in our lane, whatever lane God has called us to. Some of you are here today, and you know good and well God is calling you to another lane. He's, call, he's gifted you to teach. He's calling you to teach, and you ain't teaching. You can come up with any excuse you want to. You're being disobedient to the Spirit. If God is convicting you and calling you to teach, and you're not coming and talking to Donna about finding you somewhere to plug in, you're being disobedient. There are people who are watching this at home right now who are being disobedient because they don't want to come back to church. They want to stay home. There are people right now being disobedient in a lot of other areas that we'll never see. Everybody has sin. Some sins are a little more obvious than others. But we all need to understand that if we're going to show Jesus our example, we've got to be willing to be pressed in and rubbed, and we've got to be able to submit ourselves under the things that God has set over us before we can be over the things God wants us to be over. When I wrote this, I stressed and I stressed and I thought and I thought and I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out how to land the plane. I felt like God had given me a word. I felt like God had laid things out on this thing for me to talk about. And I was like, Lord, how do I tie a bow on that? How do I finish this thing out? And, and I couldn't come up with anything until I, I was doing some more study. I went back and I read the entire passage of Isaiah 53 from which Peter quotes a lot of. And so here's how we're going to close today. Just, I want you to just, we're almost done. Just be patient with me just a little bit and listen Intently, Lean in and just listen intently as I read this from Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 12. We're talking about our example. We're talking about how to, how to live through adversity. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. 
We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was with a rich man at his death. But he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as a spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. You know who the rebels were? Us. H.B. Charles Jr. said, The fact that Christ suffered is remarkable. The reason he suffered is more remarkable for you. So my question today as we close for our time of invitation is, what adversity is he asking you to do? What adversity is he calling you to? What adversity is he setting before you that you feel is too great? What is it that God is calling you to that you just say, you know what, you've, you've, you've overstepped. God, I love you and I appreciate everything you've done for me, but you've just taken it a step too far. Is there anything? Is there anything he could call you to do, call you to go through, call you to, to anybody he called you to challenge or speak to or share with that you would just say, no, God, I'm not doing that. God, you don't understand. My job won't let you. don't understand. My friendships will be. God, you don't understand how this relationship is. God, you don't. I'm trying to make mine. I'm trying to get up. I'm trying to get my, establish my re reputation and get my, no, 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 no. You've missed your purpose. Remember? that underwriting you, you're supposed to be the blank sheet of paper you put yourself on him and you let God just press in until you start to look more like Christ so if you would stand with me this morning as we close as always the invitation is always simple the the, the crux of the, of the invitation is simple I want everybody in this room to be obedient instantly to the Holy Spirit of God as he convicts you so whatever God is calling you about, whatever he's talking to you, whatever that kaleo is on your life, maybe he's calling you to come to Christ for the first time. Look at me. Be bold. Have guts. Jesus can hang naked on a cross. You can stand in front of a bunch of people who want to have your back and tell them that you want to follow Christ. Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you're not following Christ like you've professed. And you want to rededicate. You want to come and say, hey, my life hasn't been that exact replica, but I want it to be. And I want, to, I want the church to pray with me and encourage me as I do that. Maybe you need to join this church. Move your letter. Maybe you're being called into ministry. Maybe God has put a call on your life. That Kaleo for you is full-time vocational service uh, in a, on a staff. You need to make that known. You need to make that public so people can encourage you and pray for you. The point of the invitation is that whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting in your heart, and you know He is, if you feel that little twinge in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit of God trying to do something in your life. Would you let Him? I'm going to pray, and then you be obedient. And we'll give this service to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've done 
God, I, I'm amazed at what you've done just for me. God, I'm still a long way from being worth anything, but my only worth comes from what you've done in my life. Thank you, Lord, for being my underwriting, my example. I pray, God, that you continue to do whatever you need to do in my life so that Jesus is what people see when they look at me. Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Would you convict and call? Would you challenge people to be obedient to whatever you're doing for them and in them? God, we give this time to you. We pray that you would use it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.